Welcome to the podcast series Anders Utrecht, where scholars and community organizers discuss how grassroots initiatives offer sustainable alternatives to urban organization in the Utrecht region. Join the sustainable urban transformation and tune in to hear what we can do differently in Anders Utrecht. Hi everyone, you are listening to the third episode of this series where we will talk about how arts and culture relate to an ecologically and socially sustainable city. My name is Ozan Alakavuklar, I am hosting today, I am part of Anders Utrecht team and today we have guests from uh, Travelling Farm Museum, uh, Asya Komarova, Mira Zwartz, Claudio Pieri and we have Mariana Toku from Casco Art Institute and we have our colleague Dan Hessler-Forst from Utrecht University. Would you please briefly introduce yourself? I'm Merel Zwartz. I'm an artist and I'm part of the team of the Traveling Farm Museum. I'm Dan Hessler-Forest. I uh, work in the media and culture department of uh, Utrecht University. And my research is about the relationship between popular culture and capitalism. And hi, I'm Mariana. I'm part of the Casco team and part of the project Traveling Farm Museum. Great. Uh, welcome again. Uh, so we are actually at uh, Casco right now. We are recording this uh, podcast uh, from Casco in one of the offices. So do not get surprised if you hear some birds chirping uh, or some other people doing work outside. So welcome uh, all of you. Very nice uh, that you join us uh, today for our conversation. Let's begin with a kind of very basic question here. How do you see the arts and culture relationship with urban sustainability? Uh, Meryl, would you like to begin? Well, I think um, that art and sustainability have a connection, especially if I look at our project, because with art we can address citizens or neighbors in Leitzerijn, where our project is located, in a, I think, in a surprising way. So uh, we can use art as a tool to start conversation, but also to address the imagination of people so we can start dreaming together of another world. And um, I think if we look at the, the issues we address, such as farming, ecological initiatives, we can also see that as a kind of cultural practice in a way, especially because we look at uh, heritage and what has been done before in Leitzerijn. And we try to connect with neighbors to see if we can make new, like learn from one another and create new uh, stories, new skills also to uh, continue in the future. But also for me as an artist, it's important to address certain topics as well, such as uh, ecology, sustainability, because I think art is important oh it's important for me as an artist to make things that um, address topics around issues in the light of climate disruption and how we live together in a sustainable way and work in a resilient way together great thank you very much very very uh, inspiring and mariana how do you see this relation uh from the perspective of Casco, but also because we come together for Traveling Farms in Forgotten Skills, this project, which was co-initiated by the artists and members of the Casco team. Um, Casco has Working for the Commons in its title, which is uh, 
a whole universe of uh, alternative approaches to uh, yeah, capitalism or the way we live and uh, work together. So um, for us, it's important that we look at the uh, art and the commons and commons within art practice, uh, like vice versa, bo- both processes. And uh, sustainability is a big part of it. Um, because cal- as like, I don't know what to add more than Mel just said, like culture is uh, shifting mentalities and approaches to all these issues that we're faced with under the climate crisis. Yeah, very soon we will hear about particular uh, activities that you follow in these organizations. But before that, I also want to ask then, how how do you see this relationship? And is there a kind of particular scientific view on that then? Um, well, I wouldn't call it scientific as a humanities scholar, but uh, there's definitely a scholarly approach or perspective that I could share. Um, I think the um, uh, what we see in from a cultural studies perspective is that societies tend to have cultures that reflect their material organization. And so uh, a capitalist society will have stories and songs and images and advertising that generally reproduce the foundations that constitute what capitalism is about. So most of the stories that we grow up with and most of the stories that we see on movie screens and read about in books are about individuals pursuing individual goals and competing with each other Um, all grounded in the accumulation of private property. Now, um, we know at this point, well, we always knew, but more people now are aware of the fact that that is that a, um, an, a social, cultural, and economic system grounded in endless accumulation and extraction is not sustainable. So the problem becomes, how do we develop new stories, new imaginaries, to help us understand what would be a desirable future. Um, And this is where the work of contemporary artists working in this field is so important because um, there are fields of economics and politics that sort of appeal to our reason, that explain to us in the way that scientists can why this is not sustainable and why a climate crisis is already ongoing. Um, But... Um, most of our most of our human um, uh, direction is grounded in imagination and emotion, and so having new stories and exploring new stories, experimenting with new cultural forms, is absolutely essential to transforming the way we engage with sustainability. Perfect. That was a really uh, good uh, background discussion, I would say, which uh, leads us to this other question and the next question: How? Does your organization uh, contribute to this kind of transformation or uh, rewriting stories or writing new stories? Yeah, well, I think if I'm going to explain a little bit of the background of Traveling Farm Museum, it is a story already, um, but I will uh, keep it as short as possible. <laughs> the, the thing we work together with Costco and the Outsiders, the artist collective of which I'm also part of and the Asia as well, Um, started in a farmhouse in Leitzerijn. So the stories we collect and the story we shape uh, all together is at the moment based in Leitzerijn. And uh, the Leitzerijn area is a um, quite new neighborhood, a Phoenix uh, neighborhood. And 
like 30 years ago, it were still farmlands and greenhouses and a lot of food production happened there. And one of the remains are like the farmhouses that are still there. And in the summer of 2018, uh, Costco, together with the outsiders um, and together with a lot of neighbors, uh, used uh, one of the farmhouses, a farmhouse Terweide in uh, Terweide shopping mall at the moment, uh, as a way to practice the commons and work together with the neighbors to see how we can live together in a more sustainable way. So is that a farmhouse that's, is that in the middle of that shopping center? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So they built the shopping center around the farm. The exactly. Ex- oh, wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so the, the farmhouse is in the middle of the shopping center and they also try to mimic the architecture of the farmhouse in the architecture uh, of the shopping mall as well. Oh, I hadn't noticed so, that. Yeah, so yeah. They, uh, they know there's a farm there. <laughs> Uh, but we're not in that farm anymore, but we wanted to continue the conversation with the neighbors about the commons, about art. And so we decided to continue the project, but then in the shape of a traveling structure. And why aren't you in the, in the, in the farm anymore? Uh, the farm is sold to developers. Oh, good agreed. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, we cannot access it anymore. Um, but we want to continue uh, what we started. So now we have a, like a mobile structure in the shape of a farmhouse, but then miniature version. Well, not that small, but still it's, we can drive it around and it's our like prototype museum at the moment. Uh, so it's a, it's a structure where we collect and present stories. That's so awesome. It's like a children's book. It's like Middle and the Traveling Farm. Yeah, you know? exa- <laughs> exactly. So it is already a story, but it's not only me. I mean, I'm only a, a part of the whole process. Uh, we work together with Asia, but also Che. She's an architect. And we have a um, composer, uh, Maxime, who makes music. So it's also making music, the, the mobile structure. And we make tours with that object uh, to different farms, initiatives around the neighborhood. And what we do is we keep collecting stories and present them to people. And we do that not only through objects, but we're also making a podcast as well. But then we talk to neighbors and farmers, but we also um, have a location in the shopping mall as well where we present those stories in a more museum kind of way we call it our depot and uh, we go to workshops we connect farmers with artists so we do a lot of different things but the main thing is focusing on what's still there what happened in the in the past and how can we work to the future and through workshops tours podcasts a lot of different activities a lot a lot of different stories a lot of different voices wonderful and um, with this i turn to mariana and i wonder what casco does and what kind of activities uh, we see yeah this project has been uh, instrumental in our transition because we relaunched our new name in 2018 where we officially embraced our research artistic research and uh, with the commons uh, also outwardly. And it was uh, one of the like uh, first uh, experiments or let's say bets, uh, uh, not in a gambling sense, but more like taking a chance of uh, I- initiating an actual commoning process of a farmhouse that didn't have land. 
So what do you do in a space that is not productive anymore in that sense and has a Winkel shopping mall around it? So you turn to the neighborhood and you make culture with whoever is interested to activate it. Uh, and that was coordinated by the artists that were inhabitants of the area, of course. So there, there were already affinities and uh, there was uh, connections between different communities of the of the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, I think if you look at these projects and uh, how we work, like long-term and investing in this kind of um, collaborative projects that involve many different uh, groups of people from children to pensioners with uh, uh, backgrounds from China to Iran to Kurdistan. This is like what Casco does in a nutshell, creating some opportunities like uh, investing in this kind of long-term projects with the different people of our ecosystem we call our like communities that surround us an ecosystem because it's a living breathing thing that gives us life and we try to give life back to it so is that is that the same farm that Melo was talking about that's the same okay. farm yes so, so is Costco like a larger organization that they that Melo's organization works with because I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how yeah it's a that's the the vagueness of the commons I think so Costco is where you stand right now and it's a, a, an old, relatively small for that standard art art organization, a presentation space with exhibitions and other projects. Yeah, just so the listener, like we're in a really cool open space full of mess and books. Yeah. Uh, in the center of Utrecht, right near near the dome, right? Yes, we're in the museum quartier and next to Photodoc. Exactly. Yes. So it's two organizations. This used to be a school and. Before that, it was a cloister. It was a women's monastery in the uh, 1700s. So we're in a very old building, and um, this is our office or our like headquarters. the The project team is consists consists of both artists uh, and part of uh, the Casco team members. Not everyone from Casco participates in this project. Yeah. So yeah. It's, you, it's a collaboration. Yeah. You refer to, both of you refer to uh, Cummins. Uh, can you elaborate on this for those who are not familiar with this concept? Because it has particular uh, way of uh, organizing things, uh, organizing economy, even organizing society. Commons are quite misunderstood as a concept. It's always, uh, I don't know, uh, misunderstood as communism or... People refer to it or think of the enclosure and, yeah, well, that was historically how commons were conceived in, uh, we have uh, references from England and the House of Commons now remains as a name that refers back to the enclosure of common land. Oh, can I, can I jump in and give like, because I teach this all the time. It's my favorite thing to tell students because like, because like, can I, yeah, because like students come in and they think that capitalism brought freedom, right? This is generally because people think capitalism is democracy is freedom. So we used to live under, you know, feudalism, which was bad and unfree. And then we went to capitalism and then we all got free, right? Right. And as I explain about the enclosure movement and how that began in England, like imagine you're a farmer, right? And you live, so you're just, you're just a regular person. You're not rich. You're not noble. You're just living somewhere. You, you're like, you, your family knows you. Your community knows you. You don't have really any property because land is not owned, right? Land is common. Um, and you, and the land is rich and fertile and you're able to live off of it. I mean, it's not a utopia. I mean, this is living under a lot of hardship, but it also 
in a very free kind of way. And it's a way of sharing that is native to most indigenous peoples before capitalism came and decided that land needed to be owned. And the enclosure movement was a bunch of rich people saying, from now on, this land is ours, it's mine. And the things that you used to do, like grow food and hunt for animals to feed yourselves, that's now called poaching. So it's theft, right? Because all the living things, all the, all the plants, all the wildlife, all the rivers, at some point even all the air, is, right, belongs to us and is commodified. And so the reason for doing this, I mean, one thing is it creates wealth for a very small group that already had a lot of wealth. Um, the other thing, more importantly, and the way that it fed into the Industrial Revolution, is that it forced people who used to be able to live off of the commons, and where the whole idea of private property was kind of alien to them, it forced them to have to go and f- sell their labor for money so that they could use that money to buy the things that they could no longer get because they would be, you know, they would be caught or killed for theft for poaching. There's a great uh, Roald Dahl book, yeah, kind of great, the Danny, the champion of the world about poaching, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, a big middle finger to the landowners. Maybe people know that. But like, so this, uh, this is the way I always explain it to my students. It's like when you go from hunting, right, and growing things yourself off of open and free land to deciding, no, from now on that is called poaching because you're stealing that deer from somebody because that deer lives on land that now has a fence around it. Right. That's when we lost our understanding in a way of the commons. And so I think rebuilding the commons as a concept, because I think you're right. Most people, you, t- you know, that you talk about, if I talk to my students about the commons or something, they're like, what? You know, yeah. they just don't know what it is yeah. because the whole idea that private property is somehow basic, a basic human, you know, idea. And that, you know, which starts in childhood, right? This is yours. This is my toy. That is your toy, right? That's where it begins. Well, if that is carried through, then we don't understand the idea of, well, I guess uh, my sister always says that sharing is caring, right? To her kids. But that's in a way what the commons kind of is about. Sorry, I, I just felt the need to... to no, no, no. That, <laughs> thank you very much. That was very helpful uh, yeah. to have this kind of background also yeah. to have kind of one-on-one political economy, right? That's <laughs> yes, how, exactly. how things have shifted uh, in, 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 uh, in centuries. Uh, but I would like to t- take this discussion to these principles, values, uh, which are mostly driven or coming out of these commons. Mm-hmm. How, you, how you see these values and principles in your organization? Uh, I'm asking both of you here uh, for Traveling Farm Museum and also for Casco. What are the values that drive you and that uh, drive uh, the, these organizations? Well, I think one of the main things is that how, if I look at how we function, we do things together, but we don't really have a certain structure. Um, so if we want to do something, it really goes organically in some sense. So we don't have a, like a structure for meetings or one person who, ha- who is in charge, but everyone does their thing and shares their th- their ideas and then things start to evolve in some way. And that's how we how we work. And it goes like this for the couple of the last couple of years and it still goes like that. So there's so, no hierarchy. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. That that yes. might be one of yeah. the values I would that's say. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's horizontal within yeah. Traveling Farm Museum. Yeah, and also look at that, how um, we divide money, for example. So um, there's no, like, that someone gets more money or more um, 
compensation, but we try to have an open discussion about everything, how we divide things. Um, yeah, so it's we don't have a, a structure for, okay, you do this, so you get this amount of fee for it, but it's we just um, trust one another and... Yeah, make things. Yeah, work. yeah. So it is. It is horizontal. It is uh, collective decision making and uh, open up space for everyone. And also, it's quite uh, emancipatory, so that everyone uh, can do whatever they want, right? So that the group or the collective provides this kind of support. Uh, how is it for Casco? It's uh, there is hierarchy in, in Casco. We have a director and uh, the boss. We have a boss, <laughs> yes. And uh, I guess there is also an implicit uh, necessity or not even implicit it's explicit for leadership from everyone like the the people that are part of the team are leading and are kind of autonomous in air quotes uh, in uh, in the projects they work in and that's the goal to decentralize basically everything but still we're a stifting a non-profit organization that handles public money receiving subsidies from the um, Receiving, like our main funding is by the city of Utrecht and Mondrian Funds, which is the main cultural fund of the Netherlands. So in that sense, we do follow, there is no legal alternative, a common legal alternative yet for uh, our organization type. So we do follow the uh, mainstream one, uh, both on paper and also in most of our functions, but still we do try to implement co collective decision-making and other forms of practices that would be the outcomes of certain values that are part of the commons, which are like, I guess, uh, about sharing. Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure how to eloquently share about the values now. <laughs> let, me, let me then ask another question, just building on this, that uh, given that you are both part of Anders Utrecht Network mm -hmm. and uh, the argument here is that we try to bring different alternative organizations together and or Anders organizations, how do you position yourself as Anders? What do you do different compared to, for instance, other art and culture institutions? And I guess Dan may uh, also uh, provide some input given that how it is quite commodified, right? Then, uh, yeah. So um, how, how do you see this Anders uh, in your work? If I look at the Travelling Farm Museum, I think one of the things is about how we let people be part of the of the project. So we don't have a like a curator or like a cu curator mode to say okay this is not artistic enough or this is not valuable enough to be part of our project we are open for everyone who would like to contribute because we think everything has a important thing to say or something to share and uh, we as like part of the crew are not there to decide whether something is good or bad okay I guess uh, what I mentioned earlier about the ecosystem is uh, quite different in, in the way we operate in comparison to other institutions that are more mainstream, more still in the trap of competitive art, uh, contemporary art market that needs to produce, produce, produce in order to stay relevant, that we really rely in the, in the relation. Also, of course, the commons discourse uh, is kind of 
let's say in the making it's always a work in progress because uh, in order to have a commons you need resources and uh, collective decision making and membership and also like certain relations so uh, we cannot claim we we have a commons yet it's always the the goal to to the endless struggle yes to yes. reach it the utopia but we do claim that we do commoning so we we try to within these structures still practice commoning um, experiments and both every day and uh, seasonally and the, the ecosystem is uh, the most important part of it and uh, what i think makes us different how we build relations with different people artists researchers students uh, different groups and organizations yeah I, i just i just love what mirel said about this kind of inclusive way and and going against this curatorial instinct that i think arts institutions generally have which feeds into a larger cultural dynamic that tends to uh um it tends to create a boundary right that that in a way isolates artists from normal from like consumers i guess of art what mirel is talking about is something really different it's about how creativity is not something that is unique to artists but that it's a shared human trait and that like you know helping everybody literally everybody not just children because it's something that we often tend to focus very much on children but focus all levels of society on the artist inside of them because unlocking that kind of artistic instinct and the and the universal creativity that everybody shares right makes us smarter makes us more connected and it makes us understand each other better so i think that that idea is something that even though i would say generally museum curators and people working in these institutions all have the best intentions and are all trying to get art to you know get this interaction going the fact that they are working within these really in a way kind of old fashioned institutions um that have their bureaucracies and their hierarchies and their traditions right they they those are all part of a longer history of capitalism that tends to warehouse literally art away from from um uh from the commons yeah and so i think that's the kind of work that that you both are doing that's so exciting that is actually breaking down you know to try finding ways to break down at a at just at a at a at a human level those kinds of distinctions that uh that ultimately right that ultimately make most of us feel like of course you know i can't make art and of course i can't you know i'm not really creative i just have a job i just work i would like to add to that that we use the concept of a museum on purpose for in that matter because we call ourselves a traveling farm museum right, yeah. and we have our de- depot where we collect all the things and we use the, the structures of an institute of a museum but in another a totally different way but yeah. also to make a kind of joke in that sense but we want to unlock the potential of artist farmers in Leitzerain and also is- don't make the hierarchy between like a professional farmer or yeah. like a neighbor cultivating their own crops yeah. i think it's interesting to have that wide spectrum of people in Leitzerain having a place in the in our so-called museum but that it is in fact essential to use terms that we already understand and exactly. are familiar with right mm. you, yeah. because um we're unable as people to understand what a thing is unless we can relate it to something else that we already know so i think if we're talking about sustainable sustainability as a as a as a an ongoing transformation right we need to appropriate as many of the terms that we already have and bend them right to yes. to better yeah. uses to help people redefine help 
us all redefine what a museum might be, what a farm might be, and how we might fit into those different spaces. Yeah. We are reclaiming the museum. Yes, very good. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I guess it's time for also discussion uh, about why, why you do this. We talk about the values and we uh, refer to uh, the position of the artist uh, in this kind of environment and how they try to do things differently. And I wonder what kind of challenges you encounter and how do you see the source of these kind of challenges? How do you cope with these challenges? And of course, this might be related to a broader uh, problem about you know sustainability in the society, but also it might be related to your own choices and own uh, preferences. How do you see these challenges? Uh, I ask, of course, both uh, Traveling Farm uh, Museum and also Casco, and maybe Dan can also uh, elaborate on that. Um, I'm jumping in on Asia. <laughs> um, well, from a position of the artist, um, to work on a long term is a privilege because we most of the time in our society are given the space of an exhibition or a book or a launch of something and sometimes biennials but biennials is again uh, a way of presenting your own work of maybe your own life work uh, but for one month um, somewhere so all these ways are not sustainable if you think about that uh, you want to keep conversation with uh, visitors or um yeah, everybody involved in building up uh, those spaces. And I think Casco, uh, by doing the, the step over to also changing the name, uh, working for the Commons in 2018, um, really started working towards that and also working with us, with us uh, towards that. Um, so what would happen if you give the chance to artists to work together for longer than one exhibition, one biennial, or um, one book uh, where different texts uh, come together? And this is the Travelling Farm Museum, for example, that started as uh, Erfgut, uh, which means uh, land use and heritage. And we were um, displaced because, of course, of of capitalism again <laughs> uh, and now we are mobile uh, and we use other spaces uh, in the neighborhood uh, which also uh, are resisting in a way uh, like the food forest they have a contract for 26 years I think but what would happen after 26 years and I think when we speak about sustainability uh, that is maybe a way of thinking as an artist about that. How can I function long-term with my relationships and the things I produce, even if they're not products? Those networks that I'm making, how they can resist and stand on their feet. Any any points from you, Mariana? It is about the slow art and uh, investing in long-term relations and projects. And uh, it is... Um, one of the ways to achieve sustainability, I guess, uh, there are also other uh, strategies like uh, prolonging uh, not only the time of the projects, but also the, the time that uh, a residency uh, can last or uh, an exhibition can last, uh, the way we travel. Uh, like th There are many ways you can implement this uh, going also online as 
live streaming your events so not many people travel to your place so there are like some practical aspects to it but uh, the essence of it is more of how you look at it in in terms of timelines or institutional timelines that uh, you don't start projects for six months but you have like a scope of a decade that's also a privilege of course to to think that far or a necessity like for us it was a necessity especially with the recent history and how casco's funding has been fluctuating let's say and how the ecosystem kept it going basically and not the uh, official funders you you need to look elsewhere or in in the collaboration in the cooperation and in investing in each other basically right I note that uh, there are challenges here, particularly about financial sustainability, keeping relations going or keeping conversations going and uh, making probably links with other groups. And um, this, this also brings uh, the discussion. How, you, how do you see your impact in Utrecht City? And uh, are there ways of consolidating this impact, some ways of boosting this impact? How do you see your role in Utrecht City? I would say that uh, especially traveling Farm Museum for Cotton Skills as a project or as a, a long-term uh, activity or initiative is one of the most impactful uh, actions of CASCO as an institution participating in this process. Other than that, uh, impact has different indexes and it depends who you ask. If you ask uh, ourselves or someone else, then the way they look at us from a, a specific position. So as an institution, we are quite modest and obscure. We are hidden in a courtyard in the city center that is not accessible by the passerby. You need to know Casco is here to find it or you need to be just aimlessly strolling and happening upon it. That That is the fiscal accessibility. And on top of that... Because of the size and uh, the resources uh, and our, uh, let's say, focus on investing our resources into long-term processes and not necessarily the mainstream ad capitalistic way of promoting uh, such processes, uh, we are, uh, let's say, not necessarily known to each citizen of Utrecht, uh, which is not not our goal or our intention, but uh, we prioritized uh, first uh, investing in what really matters, like uh, cultural projects and how they can affect change. Yeah, you need you need to like not see it in a black and white mm-hmm. way. It's not a binary to be impactful only in your city because mm-hmm. there is the rest of the world as well. Yeah, of course, of course. Would you like to add anything to this? Uh, well, I can speak from the perspective of the Traveling Fire Museum, um, maybe by telling a, a small uh, event that happened last week. With, uh, when we started the project, some neighbors, uh, because the farm, we just opened the doors and we invite everyone to come. Uh, so instead of making... Uh, and a vernissage, we made a vernissage when we had to go. Because when we opened the doors, we had nothing. And when we closed the doors, we had a lot of things going on. And during this process, some people joined us, um, some uh, neighbors, that they asked if we they could, uh, could use the farm to brew beer. 
and they called themselves the Tervai the Triple Terror. That was their beat, <laughs> uh, which was like a very strong beer, I must say. <laughs> and they, uh, uh, what they did is that they didn't have a brewery, so they use our space to brew, but also to teach other people to brew for like a very symbolic amount. Uh, so when we had to close, they sort of lost their space. So they started to ask neighbors to plant hop in the gardens. It was like a spread, uh, spread uh, um, uh, brewery uh, to to harvest hop and then brew beer with it. And um, the last tour we did was in this uh, food forest uh, in Harsaulent. And the, uh, I offered this beer to the guys, and then they, uh, the guys start to read the etiquette and say, "Hey, wait a minute! We have this hope growing in the in the forest." Um, and then I said, "Huh? That's a good connection." So um, uh, probably next week, the the guerrilla brew brower, uh, beer brewers will uh, meet the <laughs> the food foresters, and then they will grow hope in the food forest to brew beer for the neighborhood. So. I mean, is that an impact? I think it's an it's impact. Tremendous somehow. impact, yeah. yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's one of the stories that the Traveling Farm Museum uh, produced, and I hope it will many more. So, what we saw last year with the tours when we started the tours was that there are all these initiatives uh, in Leitzerain, and it's a relatively small area. And you you get from commercial farming and uh, uh, foresters and gardeners and different types of cultivations, and they don't really know it of each other, even the ones that fall under the same category, uh, or maybe they know of each other, but they don't really connect. So that's also one of the aspects of these tours or this phase of the traveling farm museum of making connections and bringing all these people together that are working towards, let's say, similar goals. Amazing. So then uh, we have seen some real good examples of impact here at the local level, even uh, city level, uh, and also given uh, the network of uh, Casco, we see some international connections and uh, international impact. Um, from a scholarly perspective, how do you see this impact and how this impact can be boosted or might there be some other alternative ways of impact? I, um, uh, it's, it's a tough question, but mostly because I just feel, I always feel very ambivalent about the term impact because I think both for artists and for scholars, uh, impact is increasingly one of the factors on which you're judged and it has to be a measurable value, uh, a way in which, you know, you have to, it's, in a way it's become uh, um one of the primary tools through which institutions gauge your value. So uh, it means that if you're a scholar and you are and you have to and you're competing for a grant, for instance, you have to demonstrate how impactful it will be by uh, proving that your the knowledge production that you are doing will reach outside of the limited confines of your academic environment or something like that. Um, so you know that you're 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 changing the world in some in some measurable way, um, and you know while that's not a bad thing to happen, obviously it's important to have that kind of back and forth between society and these various institutions and fields of creative labor. Um, th- using that impact as a measurement 
is also something that really feeds back into capitalism's basic competitive drive, because it means that we're now measuring different impact factors in relation to each other. So this is where I always feel a little bit reluctant to celebrate impact as something, oh, look at this art project, they're very impactful. Unfortunately, all of these others are not at all impactful because either their way, either the way they're reaching people can't be measured in the same, in the same field, or they didn't get lucky and have some, you know, reporter for a national newspaper write a story about them, and then all of a sudden they could prove that they were impactful or something like that. So there's a very arbitrary factor involved in all of these things. Um, I think in the end, when, when, when talking about impact, societal impact and um and 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 arts and creative labor you know and sustainability the key issue of course is is what you were talking about before is um uh is being able to plan ahead without constantly improvising on the short term and this this is not this is not only a factor this is a, a very deciding factor for arts but it's also of course in all fields of labor uh for 10 years i worked under temporary contracts for the university and it was incredibly stressful because you're always, you know, you're always just working, you know, just you're trying to do the best that you can. And you know that you're competing with others for the vanishing selection of uh, permanent jobs that are there that will supposedly guarantee, you know, your, your uh, future employment. Um, I th- and the only way, you know, to, to, to get around this is to... Um, uh, ultimately, and you know, now I'm going to sound like I'm I'm pleading for full communism, which I am. But you know, is to is to go is to relieve this idea, get rid of this idea that we need to be constantly laboring um, every working, uh, you know, every hour of the day, uh, and and thereby competing for limited resources. Um, we've gone. Um, and, you know, and the nice thing is that mechanization and robotization of labor makes this eminently feasible. Uh, and and to reduce working hours, which would allow for you know some kind of universal basic income that will have that will allow artists to create art without having to wor- worry too much about getting the next grant or something like that. They'll have scholars being able to do their work, have everybody be able to do their work in fewer hours uh, and have more time to invest together in common activity. To me, this seems like you know. Obvious. I know that's not, I know this is a minority opinion, you know, a, a weird minority opinion. But that is, I think, the thing that Anders Utrecht and all of the US organizations are really investing in is experimenting with ways of how we can live differently together, right? And not be constantly limited and restrained by the, the societal impediments that capitalism has constructed around us. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good uh, overview, I would say, about the n- notion of impact. And I think one other way might be to kind of appropriate the meaning of impact and, you know, use it in, for different purposes. That, yes, yes. And and just to argue that it's not a measurable thing, that it's actually more than that and it has different uh, um, effects. Yes, on, and it's on, it's a, on and us, it's, on people, on communities. And yes. I guess it's it's also to some extent qualitatively demonstrate that, right? Yeah, and it's it's a and, and but but I mean we're, uh, the, the the problem is that every time we start the conversation we get sucked into the wrong kind of um, uh, of of dynamic. Yeah. Uh, we get sucked into saying like my art is impactful because people see it and it affects them, right? And I know because I'm there. Uh, that's impact. Uh, that's like well, no. How can you show that this is you know? How, and, and and as soon as and so if if you're creating work, creating art. 
that is telling a story and showing a different way of being, a different way of living. And especially if you're doing that in a way that challenges the existing paradigms, right? That is, you know, of course, the simple question is you don't know exactly how impactful it's going to be, but the more people get on board and the more people start working in these ways and experimenting with these projects, the wider the impact is going to is going to be. It's, is it, it's going to affect people. Yeah, with this, I would like to turn to Claudia, just building on this kind of uh, conversation. Uh, first of all, welcome again. And uh, if you can introduce yourself, that would be great. And yes. then my question will be about how you see this discussion uh, as a as an anthropology student. Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm Claudio. Um, I'm an anthropology student. And uh, in the last few months, I've been engaged in fieldwork research in Leichterein. Uh, where through engaging with participants and organizations of the area, I've tried to understand what are their perception about the built environment and uh, planning of this new neighborhood. So uh, first of all, the project started when I moved in the neighborhood in September. I found a room in a family house. And um, personally, I come from Italy, uh, from a, a countryside of a small town, in Tuscany, uh, where I usually see a lot of nature around me. And uh, also the buildings are very old, usually. Uh, and instead, I was in a newly built neighborhood, uh, which I felt uh, in the first moments very organized, tidy and quiet. Um, well, I remember the first assignment I got from the university was take a picture of neoliberalism i walked out of my door i take a picture of <laughs> it was the street right there, <laughs> staring you in the face yeah <laughs> so that's how i started my engagement in life that i'm trying to understand the historical past heritage and land use so i'm a passionate of maps i start watching uh, google maps uh, you have a function to go back in time and there were uh, meadows farms and green and then you go um, in 2002, 2007, and you start seeing how plots of uh, fields are turned into urbanized area, highly urbanized area. So this is also the idea of Phoenixweich, which uh, has been mentioned, this note on spatial planning. And uh, you see that through this um, policy, decentralization, and privatization of land uh, really impact uh, uh, the Netherlands, for instance. And this new neighborhood arises, like the Rhine is the largest Phoenixweich in the Netherlands. And so um, to engage with residents, I started uh, navigating the area, meeting people, asking questions. And uh, at some point, I also found the outsiders. And uh, the first moment that I saw their project, I was like, they are uh, trying, they're already expressing what I'm trying to, to observe. And, and that's why uh, I joined them in uh, these tours that, uh, so we visited different agriculture practices uh, about also food production in the area. And uh, through this um, participative uh, museum, you really, um, can explore this forgotten dimension, which is uh, the food production. Uh, and it's funny what Asia also was mentioning that um, we, well, not just in Lexerine, uh, we buy food in our supermarkets and we don't know 
where or how a potato grows or anything about that. So reflecting on uh, uh, food production in our in cities, I think it's super necessary at this point of time. Modernity has changed the way we live, the way we confront with surrounds us. So this is particularly interesting for me because um, I think also the way um, that we live today has changed, of course. And this also puts new questions or how will we uh, confront with this new, new type of reality? So um, I think... Well, uh, all this debate or reappropriating about the commons and this idea of work and free time, it's very um, interesting when we observe um, what is the outcome of these possibilities, what, what can happen. And uh, it's also interesting to see how the discourse on sustainability uh, merges with this debate because... Uh, uh, we are now seeing a growing awareness about climate change and other environmental issues. But these, uh, I think it needs to be seen under this hegemonic light of capitalism and neoliberalism that incorporates this discourse and replicates its practices in a new way. So I think it's also for us citizens necessary to reflect on what uh, meanings of sustainabilities are uh, because sustainability uh, has been used, or there is a growing use of this word, um, which uh, somehow lost its value because everyone says that it's doing sustainability um, practices. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, for me, um, yeah, I, I have this critical reflection on uh, the use we make of awareness, uh, space and uh, society. Great, thank you very much. That's uh, I, I would argue probably sustainability turn into a kind of empty signifier that everyone puts something into it and try to extract value in different forms. But of course, we are uh, imposed on having a particular value, which is driven by this capital uh, logic of capital and also the neoliberal uh, priorities. Yeah, but like, but it's like using that term and maybe going into it a little bit more is interesting because. You know the the very start of the uh, of of the climate movement of the environmental movement was grounded in the limits model, right? It's like the spaceship Earth was 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 you know the idea that there are absolute limits on how much you can extract from the Earth and how many resources you can burn up and destroy and stuff like that, and that was the first shock in the 1970s. It's like you know, holy shit, we can't um, we can't keep going like this, and in the influence of of you know corporations and 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 politicians, this shifted over from talking about limits to talking about sustainability. And sustainability was like a kind of a modified version that really wasn't about saying there are absolute limits, but it was it was always about saying like how we we how much further can we push it, and how much loss are we willing to accept? You know, so how many bird species can we lose? How many bees can, you know, can we, can we lose 30% of the bees or, you know, maybe even 35 before, before like life goes extinct, you know, stuff, stuff like that. It's really weird. And I think this, this, you know, while sustainability has a lot of ways in which I think we can use it productively, right? We can talk about, are we working? Uh, you know, is, is the system of having a 40 or 38 hour work week, uh, is that a sustainable way of living for people, right? Is that a way that, that we can, that, that is actually humanly possible? And I think now in the, after Corona, I think a lot of 
minds and opinions have shifted about this, about the role that labor plays in our society and how it really aggravates existing inequalities and stuff like that. But I think returning also to this, if we're talking about real, about climate issues and the environment, thinking about limits, I think that works better in all of these environments to say, no, there should be absolute limits on how much people labor. There should be limits on how long people labor, you know, there should be, and there should be limits on um, how you know how many how many cars we get to have all those those kinds of things, but we don't want to think about that because it is entirely antithetical to the capitalist system, right? Because the capital, like, okay, sorry, I have to quote Marx, but he would say like, capital, whenever it meets a boundary, right, it just finds a way to move it somewhere else, right? So it just moves it around constantly instead yeah. of saying, oh, sorry, no, it stops here. No, 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 we'll just. We'll just push it over there. We can't yeah. find labor in the United States. Oh, we'll go find labor in China, right? Yeah. These are ways of shifting boundaries that are all ultimately compatible with a sustainability model, but not with a limits model. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That, that that's a really good uh, case. Also, uh, you know how to how to understand the role of capital today in terms of finding voids to yes. extract re-extract values. Yeah, and with this, I would like to turn to the question of a vision because we kind of discussed uh, the role of organizations. What you do, how you do, why you do. Uh, but I guess there might be a kind of vision here that you want to go towards or that you want to work towards. And uh, I wonder uh, how you see this vision. Um, well, personally, uh, I'm an advocate for degrowth. So I really believe, uh, well, this uh, discourse about limits, we really have to b get back to limits, to understand limits. Um, because as well, what Dan was just mentioning, we are always, uh, of course, planning ahead the future, uh, deciding what we want to the future, saying, okay, in 2050, we will cut emissions, for example. But it's not, uh, well, ideally, it's uh, on the flow of this mindset of reducing our impact, but it does not really give, um, it does uh, not present us a way to actually do it now. So we need, um, and I think this is important about uh, grassroots practices or local activities that really puts you in the mindset to see how from a small dimension, you can really applicate uh, something and do something. Um, and I really um, believe in the power of your hands, get your hands dirty. Uh, that really means that the dimension you're impacting is small. You're not, uh, so uh, of course, when you start using large machinery, when you start thinking about large scale, then the problem emerge because you need more materials, more um, everything, more sources in general. So my vision is, um, yeah, think about our limits, act within those. Great. Uh, Asya? Um, well, I uh, want to talk about the lens of the Traveling Farm Museum. And for us, the challenge, besides what you already mentioned, uh, which what happens out there impact a small project like ours. For us, the challenge is always when we fall, we have to stand up, right? So we have to, we had been kicked out from the farm. We have to 
reorganize and make a, a mobile structure. Uh, now we lost the poll because a uh, supermarket is extending. Oh <laughs> so they got God. our space. Oh my but our project is... <laughs> Beep! <laughs> <laughs> but our project, it's about food. And our project came out uh, the fact of a neighborhood like uh, Leitzerein that has uh, 80,000 people living feed from two supermarkets. Uh, which I'm not going to advertise. <laughs> so we also have to function as those institutions. We have to reorganize and we have to have a vision to be able to survive in a way, right? So I hope the Traveling Farm Museum will sort of lose the word traveling and become the Farm Museum to have a fixed place, hopefully in a farm, because all the farms in Leitzerein has been transformed in some horeca, some kind of bar or, um, well, not all, but most of them. But they don't have that function anymore or of the way people used to live, how seasonal they used to live, how a house should be used, like where to storage food, uh, where to grow food, how to use our animals. So that's why we had the name of Forgotten Skills in the, in the museum, because we forget all these things. We know we have a fridge, we have uh, uh, air ventilation in the house, so... We also forget how we used to live through two, two, through, uh, two generations uh, going to the supermarket. That's why a vision for the Traveling Farm Museum is to make a museum of that kind of living. Otherwise, our children would not know anymore that you used to have a fungus growing <laughs> for your <laughs> digestion uh, somewhere underneath the, the, the floor of your house if you don't tell those stories anymore. That is our... <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah>. Amazing. <laughs> Great vision, I would say. <laughs> so inspiring. Uh, for Casco? To continue building sustainable and long-term relations within its ecosystem and projects that will uh, affect change, real change on the ground and also affect some uh, mind shifts uh, in, uh, in our culture, both locally nationally and beyond the borders of the Netherlands. Okay, that's a great vision. Quite ambitious, but quite uh, the right way to go, I would say. Um, <laughs> we are coming to the end of our uh, podcast, and this is, the, this is the moment we ask more or less the same question for each uh, guest we had uh, up to now. Assume that we have a newcomer uh, to Utrecht and who is interested in culture, art, uh, sustainability... Mm broadly and who may have some uh, activist ambitions what would you suggest uh, them yeah uh, listening to Claudio's uh, recollection of how she found the project was heartwarming actually and this is one way I guess to immerse in a city and uh, different projects that happen to actually uh, like open your ears and eyes and engage with your local surroundings being the neighborhood or uh, the the larger city um i would say that uh, there are many many events like utrecht specifically is a very dynamic city because it's in the center and in the center of the netherlands so it's a hub and it's also um, a university city so even under pandemic conditions uh, 
There are always weekly happenings and events organized by diverse groups uh, for all tastes and interests. Uh, and Anders Utrecht is a testament to that, of like building a network around these movements and groups. So um, what is the entry point, I guess? Uh, look around and you follow the thread from where you start. Great. Uh, any suggestions from you, Claudia? Yes. Um, well, as I said, my suggestion is uh, get your hands dirty and do something mm-hmm. and do it now. <laughs> so activate yourself, get out of your house, talk to people and uh, ask them how you can support them. And therefore, they will also eventually support you. Great. And then? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I join that entirely. I mean, uh, Uh, change won't happen unless we organize, right? Change only happens through political organization. And I think um, when we talk about, you know, sustainability and and the ongoing climate catastrophe, um, people feel, it's easy to feel demotivated because people feel individually that whatever they do, even though we're, you know, we're told to consume ethically and to recycle and to do these things. We also know that none of that really matters because the big corp- big companies uh, and governments are the major factors in these in these transformations. Um, but I think you know one way that I experienced anyway of of shifting that perspective of absolute despair and hopelessness is first by creating connections directly around you and finding that the things, you know, that we've been talking about, about just the fun and the joy in uh, making beer together, you know, doing arts projects together, growing food. Like my kids are now, you know, live somewhere where we have a garden and the kids are now like growing all these different herbs in the garden and stuff like that. And it's so much fun. And I think that's step one, right? And it's to do that and to not do it privately, but to do it together, to develop a space together where you can uh, engage creatively and and get your hands literally dirty. I mean, in the dirt, right? And to and to understand how food works. I think the next necessary step, though, the next necessary step is is one in which you understand, like, okay, this can already make a huge difference in how you live in a city. Um, but imagine if if different groups start collaborating, you know, and and scaling this upwards, not in terms of competing and getting, you know, the next cool beer brand that can make it into the supermarkets, but developing actual alternatives. So you could know, so you no longer have to go to the supermarket. And all it takes in a neighborhood is one person who starts saying, hey, you know, let's, let's start doing this and get people on board. Um, and that's how it happens, you know, and that's what, that's literally what impact is. That's what, that's what I think the process of commenting is. It's, it's teaching and explaining to others, right? What, how fucked up the system is that we're in and how little, how, how, how vulnerable it actually is because it makes no sense and everybody hates it. So, I mean, I mean, once you understand this and can explain it to others, right, and say, well, we don't have to work these long hours and we don't have to buy shitty food from the supermarket, you know, and we don't have to, we, nobody, we don't have to do these things. We were born into this world we hadn't chosen for it, but it, it's surprising how fast you can really shift that over. So you, before you know it, it's, you know, revolution time. <laughs> That's a fantastic end, which really drives us, I would say. Um, and with this, I would like to thank everyone uh, who joined us today, Asia, Meryl, Claudia, Mariana, and Dan. And uh, at the backside, also thanks for the production, Bella, with uh, magnificent effort that you put in. So please 
watch this space. There will be more podcasts coming up about social inclusion, about natural environment and about climate change. And we would like to have other organizations who are working in this area and we would like to hear their experiences and how they would do things differently. Thank you.